The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here and uh, it is good to be with you. Um, I'm glad that we can join together. And uh, if you're a guest or a visitor, I do want to extend uh, an invitation to you. Um, as you walked in, you probably noticed uh, we have lots of tables set up. You can probably smell uh, some things wafting in from the kitchen. Um, it, this was a bad idea. Like, <laughs> all I'm thinking about is barbecue. But, um, <clears throat> but uh, we would love for you to uh, feel free to stick around and, and have lunch with us. We would... Uh, we would I'd love for you to stay if, if, you'd, uh, if you have time and if you're able. Uh, we know you didn't bring anything. You're a guest. You're a visitor. We, we don't expect that you did, so please feel free to stick around. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, before I get started, hey, Matthew, will you grab me a glass of water out of the kitchen? Um, I forgot to grab one. Um, so <clears throat> as we're getting started, this is the uh, last Sunday in a four-week sermon series that we're doing on stewardship. So over the last few weeks, uh, we have seen how God has called us to steward the things that he has given us, that we are to steward his, the gifts and the relationships and the, the time that he has afforded to us. And the repeated theme throughout this series so far has been that none of these things are ours. We don't own these things. Our time, our relationships, our gifts, none of them are ours. They belong to the Lord. And this is true not just of these things like time and relationships and gifts. Thanks, Matthew. It's not just true of these sorts of things, but it's also true of our money. Of our money. Our money belongs to God. It is ultimately not ours. And so we are called to steward that money. We're called to be stewards of the wealth that God gives to us. So how do we do that? Well, to help us understand our relationship with money, with wealth, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 6. We're going to look at a portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, now I will say that during the sermon, we're going to be moving around a little bit in the New Testament. We're just beginning, though, in Matthew 6. So Matthew 6. As you're turning there, uh, this week, I came across a quote that has been attributed to Ted Turner. So we know Ted Turner, right? Founder of CNN, TBS. He at one time was the largest single landowner in the United States. He had over 2 million acres that went across 12 different states. And Ted Turner said this. He said, life is a game and money is how we keep score. Life is a game, and money is how we keep score. I wonder what you think about that. I imagine that probably none of us would, would maybe say those words out loud. Um, maybe none of us would even think that, that life is a game, and money is how we keep score. And yet, yet I wonder if that's exactly how our world thinks about it. Right? I was reading uh, an article written by a man named David Clay in the journal Mockingbird. And he said that that's exactly how the world understands money. 
that it's a way in which we keep score, right? We use money to measure the immeasurable things in life. The greatness of a painting, it's determined by how much it sells for, right? The, the greatness of a painting is, is, in, is consistent with how much money we spend for it, right? Money is how we measure things that are immeasurable. It's valuable because it's expensive. Money is also how the world, how maybe sometimes we determine goodness. Michael Bloomberg, the New York City billionaire, talking about his charitable work said, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to get interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. He's used his money for charity for philanthropic works, for giving to those in need. And so, therefore, he has earned his place in heaven. His money has determined his goodness. And we use money this way to make us feel righteous, to measure something's worth, to determine our value, particularly as it relates to others. But this, is this the relationship we're to have with money? Is this how we should think about it? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And so right there, Paul is telling us that the problem isn't with money or wealth itself. In fact, we see throughout the scriptures that at times God has blessed his people with great wealth, right? Abraham, David, Solomon. In the New Testament, we have Joseph of Arimathea who owned land and gave a portion of that over for Jesus to be buried. So wealth actually isn't the problem. It's the way we appropriate wealth. Money isn't the issue. It's the love of money. So the question we must ask is how will we steward our money? How will we resist the love of money? Well, to help us answer that question, Jesus has given us Matthew 6. So let's follow along, beginning in verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fill our eyes with light and that you would soften our hearts now so that as we come to your word, you would lead us and teach us and that we would follow you. Lord, help us to see our wealth in ways that you do and guide our time now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if we're going to be good stewards of the wealth, of the money that God has given us, we have to see first that money is momentary. Money is momentary. And that's what the implications of Jesus' words are, right? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
right? Money is momentary. The moths will eat it. The rust will destroy it. It's fleeting. And we know this. We know this because we use that cliched saying, right? You can't take it with you. You know, when, when you die, you can't take those things with you. It's cliched and it gets said over and over. And it gets said over and over because we need reminding of it, don't we? Because oftentimes we live as though we can take it with us. As though this is actually the fullness of who we are. And yet we need that reminder that, that what we have today will be passed on to someone else. Right? Solomon wrote of that in Ecclesiastes, right? When he talked about his wealth. He was looking at the various things in the world and he looked at his wealth, his possessions, the things he had accumulated. And he said it's all vanity. It's vanity, it's striving after wind because for all the things that he had accumulated, he was only going to pass it on to someone after him. And who knows what they might do with it, right? They might use it well, they might squander it, they might use it poorly. He understood that. And we need to be reminded of that, that money is momentary. And when we remember that, it should free us, shouldn't it? If it is fleeting, if it is momentary, it should cause us to open our hands to it. If we know we can't take it with us and we understand that moth and rust will eat away at it, then shouldn't we loosen our grip? But actually, the, the opposite often happens, doesn't it? Because it's fleeting, we actually hold on to it. We tighten our grip. We hold fast and we hoard it and we want more of it and we are greedy for just a little bit more. Now, this isn't just a problem for the uber wealthy. I know it'd be easy for us to think that, right? Like the Michael Bloombergs of the world, like this is their problem. It's not my problem, right? Us middle class Americans, right? It's not our problem, but... But the fact of the matter is, is regardless of your socioeconomic status, we are all susceptible to greed. You are. I am. Even the child who has no earning potential. <laughs> we are all susceptible to greed. Because we all think all we need is just a little bit more. And then a little bit more. And then a little bit more. Because if I have a little bit more, then I'll be able to get that thing that will finally make me happy. If I have a little bit more, then, then that means that maybe I've gotten that title, that promotion, and now I will finally get the respect that I deserve. If I have just a little bit more, then tomorrow and 20 years and 40 years from now will be taken care of. But friends, when we think that little bit more is what we need, we're looking to money, which is momentary, to give us security. And when that happens, it becomes a rival to God. That's what Jesus says in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus makes it perfectly clear, right? You can't serve both. You will serve one that is momentary or you will serve the other that is eternal. And so if we're going to resist serving money and instead we're going to steward it, the first thing we have to see is that it is momentary. It's fleeting. But we need to see not just that money is momentary, we also need to see that riches 
are risky. Riches are risky. Now, to see this, uh, I want us to consider an, an occasion in Matthew 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus has this encounter with a, a young man. We sometimes refer to him as the rich young ruler. So the rich young ruler is this guy. He's, he's part of the crowd. He's maybe heard about Jesus, maybe even heard some of his teaching. And so he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, that is an outstanding question, y'all. In fact, that is the question. What must I do? Like, how do I gain eternal life? That is the most important question any of us could ask. And so what does Jesus say to him? Well, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, knowing his heart, knowing his mind, he says, well, keep all the commandments. And he lists off a few. And the rich young ruler hears them, honor thy father and mother, don't commit adultery, do not steal, all these different commandments. And he says to Jesus, all this I have kept. I've kept all the law. So what do I still lack? So Jesus, knowing the rich young ruler's heart, says to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus said to this one who claimed basically moral perfection, I have kept all the law. He said, go and sell what you have. And we're told that the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. Now, this encounter with the rich young ruler, it reminds me of, of a scene in The Lord of the Rings. So in The Fellowship of the Ring, at the very beginning, especially of the movies, it's early in the movies, right, because the movie can't do all the pre-work of the book, all the good stuff, right? But, but early in the movie, we have Bilbo Baggins, and he still possesses the Ring of Power, Right? He, still, he still has the ring, and he's had it for many years, and it's prolonged his life, but it's his birthday. It's his birthday, and it's time for him to give away the ring, to let go of it. And so there he is. He's in his hobbit hole, and his friend Gandalf is there, and Gandalf, his friend, prompts him and says, I think you should leave the ring behind, Bilbo. Is that so hard? And Bilbo, he says, well, no, and yes. Now it comes to it, I, I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine, I found it, it came to me. What business is it of yours, Gandalf, what I do with my own things? In Bilbo's words, can't you hear the rich young ruler's heart? But they're my things. Those possessions, Jesus, that you say I should go and sell, they're mine. In Bilbo's words, can't you hear our hearts? It's my wealth. It's my riches. It's mine. But Gandalf says to Bilbo, he says, I am not trying to rob you. I am trying to help you. You see, Gandalf saw the hold that the ring had on Bilbo's heart. The very same kind of hold that wealth can have on ours. And so Jesus warns the, the rich young ruler and he warns us of the risk of riches. He says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
It is easier for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? This is a picture that Jesus is giving us, right? Like, the, that's impossible, right? This is the picture he's giving us. He says, it's easier for that to happen than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? He says it because riches and wealth and money, they take hold of the human heart in such a way that there is no room for Christ. And that's what Jesus is pointing at. The rich young ruler felt good about himself. He kept the commandments. He hadn't murdered. He hadn't committed adultery. He hadn't borne false witness. He, he honored his parents. He loved his neighbor. Now, clearly, he hadn't heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? Because uh, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if you uh, have hateful thoughts about your brother, you have killed him in your mind. If you have lustful thoughts about someone other than your spouse, you have committed adultery already. So he clearly hadn't heard that. But, but for his take, for his understanding, he was law-keeping. But through all his keeping of the law, ultimately, he was keeping a tighter grip on his wealth. And that's what Jesus is showing us. That out of care for the rich young ruler and out of compassion for us, Jesus is pointing out the very thing that can cause us great harm. That of giving our hearts to anything but him. So he's warning us. And he's helping us to see the risk of riches. So how do we know if we're in danger? How do we know if this risk is, is pushing in on us? Well, well, do you find value in your wealth? Are you important? Are we important because we have money? Do we find security in our 401k and our retirement and our Roth and the properties that we own? Tomorrow is taken care of because we have all this savings. I don't have to trust Jesus for, or God for, for my daily bread because I have this bank account. Are, are we putting our security in our wealth? Are we trying to find power through our riches? We'll have influence and people will listen to us and we can turn opinions and we can orient people around something that we desire simply because we have wealth. Friends, as soon as we start to look to find power or security or value in our riches, our souls are at risk. Our souls are at risk. So how do we combat this? How do we steward our mind? How do we combat the riskiness of riches? Well, we combat it through generosity. That's what we do. And we all know that that's what we're supposed to be, right? Generous. That's what we're supposed to be. And so it would be very easy for me right now to stand here and say, um, stay away from the riskiness of riches. Know that money is momentary and quit being stingy. <laughs> right? It'd be very easy for me to do that. Go ahead. Give all your money to the church and to missions. Don't hoard it. Don't use your money on things that fade. Feel really guilty and the offering box is outside. <laughs> right? It would be very easy for me to do that. And for a little while, guilt would set in. And we would start to look generous for a time. But it won't last, will it? I mean, that's not the generosity that we're talking about. 
No, true, for true generosity to take hold, generosity that's not guilt-ridden but joyful, we have to see that we're recipients of great generosity. And that's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8. Now, the context of 2 Corinthians 8 is that Paul is taking up an offering from a variety of churches in the Middle East. He's going around and he's gathering up an offering to take to the church of Jerusalem who was in need. And so he points to the, the uh, people, the church at Macedonia. And he says that they gave not out of their wealth, out of their riches, but they gave out of their poverty. But ultimately, Paul points not to the church at Macedonia or to the church at Ephesus or to uh, some other church, but ultimately he points to Jesus himself. That he is the ultimate example of generosity. For in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So do you see what Paul's doing? He is invoking Jesus' generosity to motivate ours. Jesus who was rich beyond all splendor, right? That's what we sing at Christmas. He was rich beyond all splendor, who was with the Father and the Spirit from the very beginning, who left the glory of heaven. He is the one who took on flesh and dwelt amongst his creation. He is the one who should be worshipped by all, and instead he was crucified and died and was buried. He was rich and he became poor. And he did so, so that by his poverty, we might become rich. Now, when I say rich, I'm not talking materially, right? I, I know that there are those out there who will say, well, well, if you have enough faith, if you believe enough, if you trust Jesus, then he will reward you with beautiful homes and cars and possessions and great wealth. But, but that's never promised in the Bible, that's not the kind of riches that Paul is talking about here. In fact, we know that many of Jesus' followers to take up their cross and follow him meant that they would live in poverty. It meant that they lived in squalor. It meant that they died with not a penny to their name. Now, that's not what's promised. That's not the riches that Paul is talking about. The riches he's talking about is that for those who are spiritually bankrupt like us, we would be made exponentially, spiritually rich. Because Jesus has been generous. He has been generous with his very life. So that those who receive his generosity, we are to respond by being generous. You see, our spiritual wealth manifests itself in material generosity. The 19th century Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, he once wrote, My dear Christian, if you would want to be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely. Christ is glorious and happy, and so shall you be. It's not your money I want, it's your happiness. Remember his own word, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we know the truth of this, don't we? We know the joy of generosity. We all have experienced it. That when we take the money that God has given us, when we take the things that God has given us to steward, 
And, and instead of finding our worth in it, instead of finding security, instead of using it to try to accrue power, we're generous with it. We're, we steward it by giving to the things of the Lord. We know the joy of that, don't we? The joy of giving to a missionary and hearing of them taking the gospel to another place. The joy of giving to RUF and hearing about the gospel going forth on a college campus and and people coming to faith and those who are already in the faith, growing up in their faith. We take joy in knowing that we contributed to that. We take joy in the generosity of giving to the church so that our little ones would hear the truths of the gospel and we would gather and we would sing and we would rejoice and we would pray. We know the joy of generosity, don't we? We know the joy of it because that is exactly how we were made to be. We were not made to be people who would hoard the things that God has given us, whether it be money or time or relationships or gifts. We are not made to use them for ourselves, but we are made to use them for the Lord. And so, friends, let us be a people who don't lay up treasures on earth, but let us lay up treasures in heaven. For Jesus said in that opening passage, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So I don't know about your heart, but I know mine. And what I know about my heart is that I need to ask God to make me have a heart that treasures him. I need Jesus' help so that I would treasure not things of this world, but things that are stored up in heaven. And so let us ask God, give us generous hearts. Make us people not overwhelmed by guilt, but people who are thankful for what God has given and generous with the things that are his. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and ask that you would make us generous people, generous with our time, with our talents, with our relationships, And yes, Father, with our money, let us be mindful that everything that we have comes from your hand. And so let us, Father, use those things for your glory and for the good of your people. So we ask that you would work and move in our midst. We are thankful for your generous work that you sent Christ to die for our sins. We pray all this in his name and God's people said together, amen.